Blog Talk Radio. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references headed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Welcome. My name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your co-hosts on this 38th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this morning from southwest Turkey, which for many of you may be situated on the other side of the planet. However, we are most likely linked by some form of nonsensical global lockdown. As the dawn chorus begins to warm up here, hopefully many of you are relaxing into a snug winter evening. And where you have clear skies will be able to see Jupiter and Saturn swing by the crescent moon ahead of the upcoming Great Conjunction. I will soon be joined by co-host and producer Kintia, together with co-host and researcher Anessa Driscoll, who are both speaking this evening from the infamous Wheelhouse in California. This show is entitled The Emperor's New World Order. As we approach the last weeks of this memorable year, most inhabitants of this rich planet reflect on their activities, mistakes, and achievements during our preceding orbit around the sun. Many choose to come together with their family and friends to catch up and to resonate with each other. On one level or another, people tend to mutually ground and recharge each other just by being together. Many people follow rituals. For some, they are religious in nature, and for others, more commercial. Some laugh, some cry, and some argue. However, this special holiday, this special marking of the end of the year, goes back to ancient Egyptian times and beyond, to the distant dawn of humanity. However, this year, this important event, which intensifies the glow of embers of the human spirit, which defines who we are, is in jeopardy of being cancelled, due to a pandemic which has been entirely based on a test that gives as reliable results as an American election. I would highly recommend you go ahead and create positive memories during this holiday that far surpass any previous ones suggested by the minority's nanny state. Make this a worthy detox and reboot. Catch up on your sleep. Make merry and air your soul. As our relationships are defined by our actions, 
this is a perfect time to remember who we are and to treat those around us as we prefer to be treated ourselves. But before you go ahead and erase your residual dark cloud memories for 2020, it may be worth taking a few moments to consider. How will 2020 be remembered in generations to come? How will it be recorded? Who can we trust to record it? In view of the current level of strict censorship, who will be allowed to circulate it? Who are the people censoring this truth? And importantly, why is this censorship and falsification of the data even necessary? Imagine you jump forward in time to the conversation where you are explaining to your son or daughter, or perhaps their son or daughter, what will you tell them about 2020? And what will you be able to say you did during this time? Will you explain how you followed the guidelines despite the intentional cognitive dissidents? Ignorance will not be a valid excuse. Or will you explain the finest tale of how you use this time to refine, maybe even redefine who you are, and take pride in the fact that you are one of the architects of our future? Not the new normal, the weak, lying puppet leaders would have you believe, but an architect of the new renaissance. Each week, we search hard to find important information to share with you. We search out and invite appropriate guests, many of whom have long ago been banned from mainstream and social media, all with a view to bring you the truth. Listening to this show, however, is not sufficient. At the very least, do check our links. Let them catalyze you to do your own research while validating the facts and share what you can with your family, friends, and colleagues. You may wish to go further by not conforming to the useless mask wearing, by not adhering to the antisocial distancing, by defying the lockdowns, and by choosing to take an active role in creating a new, brighter world, starting at grassroots by treating people around you as you would have them treat you. Each one of us needs to take responsibility to kickstart the economy. I would highly recommend you sponsor local businesses rather than aiding the tyrannical corporations. I do not wish to repeat the same message every week. In fact, you may go back and play all our shows free of charge. While you will have to put up with our inadequacies, you will find a great deal of very helpful information and data that should help you wake up and smell the coffee above and beyond the smell of the bullshit that is incessantly coming out of the mainstream and social media. Use this time to study. Check our many hundred links. There are so many fundamental topics to choose from. You may choose germ theory versus terrain theory. Or you could order a book, for example, The Study of Influenza, a 50-year research project by R. Edgar Hope Simpson. Do not believe everything you see on TV. In a true pandemic, we would expect to hear millions of losses, but the death rate is relatively low. The mask, distancing, and lockdowns are not showing any significant positive effects. The death curves tell the truth, except the politicians do not seem to interpret them correctly, or they just simply do not wish to. Why do the heads of state administrators continue to persist with this strategy? Is it simply because they cannot admit their horrendous planet-sized mistakes? Or is it because they have been ordered to usher in the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution? Either way, it does not really matter, as ultimately it is our choice to retain our power and to make our decisions to select the future we intend to live. Let's use this unique star formation, which most of us in the Northern Hemisphere can see, as a symbol to unite our momentum and to lead us to our new renaissance. I very much look forward to hearing our guest's perspective regarding this essential awakening process.
all with a view to illuminate the best path for leaders to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on the other side of the news in the drop-down menu, or kindly scroll down to tonight's white, the other side of the news show banner. There you will see details for this show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references, and selected research. As usual, there's a huge collection of information to read, watch, and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and to even download your own copies sooner than later, as the censorship robots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last seven rotations, we have seen many remarkable events and headlines reported in the news. To discuss and present each topic in correct context could easily fill up an entire show by itself. As the other side of the news is not, per se, a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, I believe we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guests. That said, I do believe there's noteworthy to mention. The UK has only managed to roll up the sleeves and roll out the vaccine to a relatively small number of people this week. The so-called Operation Moonshot is clearly going to take months and months at this rate. That's good news. Allergic reactions, bells, palsy, and passing out has been reported and even witnessed on live TV. Maybe this would explain why resuscitation rooms are being set up next to vaccination rooms. In Corby, in the heart of the Industrial North, a fleet of new porter cabins is being fitted up, which will most likely become mobile test centers or vaccination points, coming to a supermarket near you. And Tom Cruise was overheard to throw his toys out of the pram while on set in the UK when some of the crew were seen disobeying anti-social distancing rules. I guess the Church of Scientology also supports the pandemic. I wonder what the plot of this movie will be. Mission Impossible sounds like Brexit. And finally, as rapid testing in the UK does not seem to show anything like the positive numbers that have been predicted, the test itself is now in question, as it seems incapable of offering politically correct results. Yes, we live in a time where the actual news is indiscernible from tragic comedy. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, and activists who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream media and social media propaganda, to make your own independent research, to stop acquiescing, and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Ivan Cummins, our guest, is such an individual. I look forward to him joining us very shortly. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Anessa. Good evening, Timothy. As I mentioned last week, I'm getting ready for the holiday with my family. And uh, in conjunction with this, we have a Christmas star that's going to light up the December sky for the first time in 800 years. That's going to happen on the 21st. Jupiter and Saturn will line up to create what's known as the Christmas star or the star of Bethlehem. So these two planets haven't appeared this close together from the Earth's vantage point since the Middle Ages. And their alignment together is extremely rare, occurring once every 20 years or so. But this conjunction is especially rare because of how close the planets will appear to be to one another. So that's going to be exciting. 
And for me personally, this is going to be a very unique Christmas because, as I mentioned, one of my sons is going all out to do preparations. The other son is like, oh, no, COVID. But I'm going to enjoy the Christmas with my two wonderful former husbands and their glorious wives. (laughs) And so this is going to be a very unique family get-together and my older son, and a couple friends. And I'm uh, appreciating the ability to live in harmony, even when, you know, many times people think like, oh, you know, ex-husband, how how are you getting along with your ex-husband? Frankly, (laughs) I love my ex-husbands. And uh, so, you know, peace has many perspectives, many descriptions. And I feel like, well, you know, if you love someone, how do you amputate part of yourself? So my Christmas is going to be unique for sure. And I'm looking forward to it. Annetta? You're a very special woman, woman I have to say. <laughs> At, uh, special qualities. Perhaps you should go and work for the uh, United Nations or sort of in, uh, yeah. peace negotiations or something along those lines. Right. <laughs> Well, let's see. Now, I was invited to this very special holiday get-together, but I probably won't be able to go because I had a little upset in my personal family, which was my cat family, as most of you know, and uh, I have I will be taking care of a, a sick kitty that just came out of surgery yesterday, so I can't leave town. But that's okay. I'm planning on just enjoying my own company and my cats and really relaxing and having some, you know, just downtime. I think it's it's great to be doing this on uh, Christmas Day. So that's my thing. As far as other things going on this week, I did get something that's not so bright and happy, and that is I got a, a text from the, uh, the care facility where my father is. For those of you that follow the show, he has Alzheimer's and he is in a care facility and I haven't been able to see him. And uh, they are planning on administering the vaccine on Monday. And as you know, I would be very, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. And unfortunately, I am not his medical power of attorney and I'm not the one that's giving consent. And the person who is is a very, very big believer in COVID. So uh, we shall see what happens. But uh, he's one of the first round, and I'm just trying to be okay with whatever comes of that. So that's where I am at that point. Do you know which one they're going to administer, Netta? Which one is the? I'm not sure. I have written to them and asked. Also, I wrote to them and asked about the COVID test that they were giving, how many cycles, and I got a I got dead air. So, Mm. uh, but. I am going to talk to his hospice nurse directly and find that out. But I think if it's what's happening in general, I think it's going to be the Pfizer one because that's the, that seems to be the first round, the one that they're giving to, you know, they're jabbing people with. So mm. There's all sorts of uh, you know, comments flying around in uh, the UK. Obviously, they, they started rolling that out, rolling up people's arms and rolling this out last week. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and side effects, resuscitation units that being set up next to the uh, the vaccination rooms, all sorts of things. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, highlight these things for you. You know about this already. It's just a question of just bringing awareness to to our listeners as well. It's yes, it's sending them into anaphylactic shock 
um, and they stop breathing, their windpipes close up. And the other thing is, is I wanted to point out there was a video of the first person in the UK, a supposedly 90-something-year-old woman who I don't, it's not that I don't believe she's 90-something years old and got the first vaccine, but the part I have a struggle with is her son and daughter were there to greet her as she comes out. And honestly, I have parents in their 90s, and really most people that are in their 90s have children that are 50 and 60 years old. And these people, frankly, look like late 30s, early 40s. Uh, I just have a hard time in believing that video. That's just my opinion. Her name is Margaret Keenan, if she's the same one I'm thinking about. She's the one we mentioned in the show last week. And I have to say that other people have commented during the week that uh, her skin doesn't look like that of somebody who's 90-something years old and uh, her muscles and and, and all sorts of comments. I mean, I think we live in a time when... Unfortunately, we can't believe anything we see on mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything is potentially photoshopped. Everything is uh, video edited, enhanced, or whatever it is. And if somebody is, is hell bent on sending out a, a propaganda message, and again, I'm jumping to one side, of course, but let's be honest, it's not without a precedent, then it's very possible. And who better than, as I say, Margaret Keenan and I think the other guy was uh, William Shakespeare, mm, um, right. the two first first victims in the UK. So, yeah, it's it's arrived, and I'm just still absolutely not speechless, but you know, beside myself with frustration as to why some people still are queuing up for this, thinking it's a great idea. Yeah, I just don't just don't get it. And there's something I would like to ask our guest later in the show. Well, you know, there's so. this, I have this, this a little bit of a guilty conscience too, because part of me is so frustrated at this point after being through this. We have people that are lining up, and part of me is just like, oh, just forget it, just go ahead and line up, and you know, find out. I mean, I, that's I know a really bad attitude. So I'm having to get myself back in line with that one. But anyway, that's not a very Christmassy attitude, now is it, Annetta? at the end of the day everybody needs to make their own choice they're responsible for their own you know being and we say this every week so we also have to take the you know we can't be judgmental about this we we can uh, do our research we can share it with people but at the end of the day if they don't want to take it then it's their choice we have to respect that Um, it's just that when it comes back into my face or into my family or into you know endangering my kids that they have to potentially wear a mask at school and so on if the schools said no masks are needed, then I would send them back to school straight away. I mean, it, it's, you know, let's, let's not go down that route. But my point is that when it comes directly back in my face, then then I draw a line and then, no, I'm not going to accept this. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, there's also positive things going on. I mean, I, I did see a lot of stuff coming out about uh, cracks, facades, people actually waking up, publications actually, yeah. Getting airplay and time on how to not wear a mask, movements, grassroots movements to do everything from recall to um, politicians that are so deep in this they can't even see. And uh, and then, you know, different grassroots movements of how to reopen businesses, things like that. So there is some there is some traction taking place. And, you know. The thing is, is what I tell myself right now is not the time to give up the fight. You know, I, I'm tired, I'm, I'm frustrated, and it's not time to quit. 
So, and for the new people that are just waking up, it's like, yeah, it's time to, time to take up the charge and keep going with this, you know, help us out here. So I do think we're seeing that. And also I know that on the 21st, we're actually moving into a new time for the planet. I mean, I grew up with, you know, the, the Broadway show Hair <laughs> and the Age of Aquarius song. And that day is upon us. I remember in elementary school thinking, and I'm dating myself here, in elementary school thinking, oh my gosh, that's just so far away. I'd be so old by the time that happens. Well, it's happening Monday. So, and it's a very, very positive thing. So I think the planet, the energy, the whole, the whole thing is ready to shift. We're going into a shift. The Christmas stars showing up. And so there's some very, very good stuff that supports this also. So I have to keep looking at that, you know, for, for my own sake. And I think maybe a lot of other people are thinking the same way on that one. But I would add is we can focus on the negative side of this, but there is the positive side is really that so much is now exposed. You know, we've been talking and talking with and being judged, people being very judgmental about, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists and people with tinfoil hats and the whole, whole you know, um, terminology that goes with it is suddenly instantly ter- you know, cast in doubt or, or considered untrustworthy and so on. But so much is now exposed that conspiracy theory has now become conspiracy fact on so many levels. And I think the, the great thing is that, you know, with, with vision, with clarity, then we can all maneuver and uh, regain momentum and move forwards. And, and also, I think it's a great reflection on ourselves because it defines who we are. What, what do we want to do? What do we want to accept? And so, much, so many of us have been you know, just sort of banding along, free-falling almost through, through our existence with nothing very much defined at all. But this year certainly has been a very defining moment for it must be touching everybody on some level and uh, many on a very high level. So, you know, I think that it's what a I really what, event. I mean, it, it, it catalyzes people into action or not. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of it just separates, <clears throat> excuse me, it just separates people right out. And you either have you had your uh, uh, going forward or you're just lost in the swirl at this point. And I think it's. In a way, it's very, very good for us. You know, I agree. I have been on the fence, and I've, I've been on this fence a long time as far as, you know, I've known what's going on. I, I make noise about it. I try to inform people, but I didn't do it with intensity, you know, until I got called a conspiracy, which, by the way, I wish everyone would look up what that actual definition is, especially in a law dictionary, because it really, <laughs> the conspirators are the people that are doing this, not the other way around. They, there's no theory about this. So uh, I like to say I'm a critical thinker, and I think the people that are trying to show the truth are the critical thinkers in this case. So that's just my own little jab there. Well, I'm, I'm hoping this, this year will certainly be the catalyst you speak of and the catalyst to what historically has been called a renaissance. And I don't wish to go woo on this, but, you know, it is – potentially a time, an exciting time when we can break through and create a whole new reality the way we want it and hopefully much better than the previous one. So uh, I'd like to start off on that standpoint. Yeah, and I'd like to jump in there. Sure. (laughs) So, you know, I am noticing like this, it, it seems like there's this division 
as you walk down the street, you can see those who are like caught up in some bubble of fear. And then you can see those who are relaxed and I'm, I'm witnessing like as though there was this centrifuge and they're being pulled apart. They're being pulled apart and you're like going towards one side or you're going towards the other. And I really do agree with you that this is a this is a time of a renaissance for humanity because we are being called to examine everything. And I can say in my circle of friends and people that I associate with, they are testifying to a lot of personal uh, benefits in terms of waking up to what they really want to do, realizing they didn't want to be doing such and such a job, finding other ways to meet, other ways to communicate. And they're taking more time for meditating. They're taking more time for reflection. So it is having a really beautiful effect in many people's lives. And it's like, which world will you choose to live in? Will you leave that TV on? And just listen to all the propaganda and all the fear porn? Or will you turn it off and start listening to your internal guidance system? What, you know, your nature, your body, your body knows what's right to do. But we've been so programmed to listen to all this, eat this processed food, take this medicine because you have a headache. Well, if you didn't have a headache, you'd have it listening to those stupid commercials. So this is a, a time of a renaissance for a connection with our inner guidance system, with our spirit. And it's also a time for becoming much more aware that that internal guidance is stronger than anything outside ourselves. We're right down to the wire now, and we're making choices. Are we going to just listen and look to the outside as our authority? Or are we going to turn to the inside and recognize the innate intelligence of our divine being, uh, the, the radiance that is in our bodies, the wisdom that's in our bodies? And I'm really excited to... Uh, bring our guest on. I'm going to introduce him because he's going to speak about the wisdom of the body. Our guest is Ivor Cummins. He is a charter engineer, biochemical engineer, and investigative researcher. For the past 30 years, he has worked in corporate technical leadership positions. His career specialty has been leading large worldwide teams in complex problem-solving activity. Since 2012, Ivor has been intensively researching the root causes of modern chronic disease. A particular focus has been on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity. He shares his research insights at public speaking engagements around the world revealing the key nutritional and lifestyle interventions which will deliver excellent health and personal productivity. He has presented at the British Association of Cardiovascular Prevention and Rehabilitation, 
and also at the Irish National Institute of Preventive Cardiology annual conferences. Ivor's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, is co-authored with preventative medicine expert Jeffrey Gerber, MD, FAAFP. This book details the conclusions of their shared research. I'd just like to say hello to you, Ivor. Are you with us? I am indeed, and thanks so much for the opportunity. Great to be here. Welcome aboard. We're so delighted to have you. We are close to break time. Before we get there, I'm so curious, what led you into this field? How were you first drawn to this work? Right. Well, actually, uh, I was a biochemical engineer originally, and I was fascinated with those topics, particularly of the the mechanics of the human body. But then I went for 20 years in a corporate role, and I was a medical device manufacturer. 60 seconds. And I was well away from that. But interestingly, in 2012, I got some routine blood tests, and my cholesterol was way too high suddenly, and I had a couple of other markers that were very, very high, top of the population, and they were significant. And I quizzed the doctor because I'm a technical expert and a root cause leader, uh, so I asked some pretty strict questions, and the doctor really couldn't answer the key questions, and that was surprising. So I went to a more senior doctor, same story. And then I went to a professor of medicine, a very respected guy connected in the family. And again, did not get the answers I was looking for. So let's let's continue this on the other side of the break. I really appreciate your understanding. Thank you. You're listening to the other side of the news. Our show tonight is the Emperor's New World Order. And our guest is Ivor Cummins. Co-hosting are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kintia. We'll catch you on the other side of the break. The only reason they've done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable. So if they kept everyone locked down over Christmas, they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at Christmas. Of course you are. And they know that you've got 65 million people in the UK. You can't, you can't please 65 million people going to each other's houses for Christmas. You can't do it. There's not enough police officers. So what they've done to try and keep some kind of, you know, appearance of power is give us those days. So it's like, I know you're going around each other's houses, but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down, us all doing it anyway, and them openly showing their weakness, which which they have. They can't enforce it. And, and the police chief, chief constable, has said as much that it's unenforceable. And so that's what I think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open, all these theaters could open, all these restaurants could open, all these bars could open, as long as they all opened, because then it's unenforceable. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy, and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aging heart. Body language clear. Breathe my breaking heart. 
Make my stand right here. Action over hope. Make my stand right here. Action over hope. Action. Show your face round here. For his master, let you hate and fear. And welcome back to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Ivor Cummins. And co-hosting with me, Kinthea, is Timothy Saunders and Annette Driscoll. So, Ivor, you were just telling us how you got into this and you had gone for a test and they didn't have the answer to your question. And so where did that take you? Yeah, well, exactly, Kinthea, yeah. Um, There's two key questions if you're a technical leader, if you're brought in to solve a problem with another team. And the first question is, well, what are the implications of these bad readings? And you need to get an idea of what's at stake. And the second question is, what are the root causes that would drive these bad readings? In other words, what things do we need to address to fix the problem? And the three doctors and the professor couldn't really answer. So I realized with routine blood tests, if the experts, and these are good guys, can't answer, there's something fundamentally wrong in the system. Not sure what it is. So I went and researched it. I researched the three um, measurements or the blood tests. Uh, Within a week or so, I had got a full in-depth understanding, and it led me down a path towards uh, carbohydrate metabolism. Because carbohydrates like breads and pastas and potatoes and rice and orange juice and all these carbohydrate foods, they trigger all of the bad pathways, metabolic pathways that lead to the metrics or blood tests I had that were bad. And so I said, okay, then. And then I began to look deeper and I found out that natural dietary fats, you know, from meat, fish, eggs, etc., are not actually harmful. The problem is modern refined carbohydrates and the vegetable oils that we're told are heart healthy. They're actually inflammatory. They're problematic. So I realized that everything we've been told for 30 or 40 years, my whole adult lifetime, to avoid fats and to eat healthy whole grains was actually incorrect. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They actually have it backwards. Um, not just a little off, but kind of inverted. I said, okay. So I said, what I'll do is I'll run the perfect, simple experiment. I will utterly transform my diet to be a very low-carb, high-fat diet with more meat, fish, eggs, and avocados, and such like, real foods. 
and I'm going to cut out all the carbohydrates and all the processed food and let's see what happens. And I was 99% convinced I would greatly improve the blood markers because I'm 30 years in this business of problem solving. Um, but I wasn't 100, but I was close to 100. And in eight and a half weeks, I lost 30 pounds. Uh, all of my blood markers became perfect. Uh, I had a new level of mental acuity, of well-being. I did no extra exercise, and I did not stop the wine I drank, the alcohol. I only wanted to do diet alone. And I also discovered that within a week or two, my appetite came under my control for the first time in my adult life, exquisitely under control. And this was something I had not researched and was a real surprise. And I realized I could go without eating for long periods with impunity. So I began to do that because it actually felt good. I know that sounds funny, but it did. It felt. Ivor, I just want to jump in here. I can't resist because here in America, I'm not sure how it is in Europe, but in America, they push the orange juice with the pastry. I mean, it's like you start off your day with that carbohydrate from orange juice and pastry. And, you know, people think this is normal. <laughs> you know, you see them lining up to get their coffee and get their orange juice and get their pastries. And, oh, my gosh. So everything we're doing is wrong. Well, essentially, uh, yes, everything is wrong. So what people should start the day with, very simple a few eggs, high protein, high fat, real foods, ancestral foods, right? Pastries are not ancestral foods. They're not real foods. They're highly refined grains with vegetable oils or seed oils, which are basically produced in chemical factories to all intents and purposes. But people are eating fake food for breakfast. And then orange juice, well, the problem with fruits are they used to be 100 or 200 years ago much more bitter and lower in sugar. But natural capitalist competitiveness has bred sweeter and sweeter foods, uh, which is the way competitive capitalism works. You know, Mary's Fruit Company makes a sweeter fruit by breeding it, sells more. And then Joe's company says, whoa, I got to get a sweeter fruit. And what happens over in 100 years is the fruits are bursting with sweetness. <laughs> so fruits mm. now are disproportionately sugar-loaded. And also, evolutionary-wise, we would get the fruits in a season, and they would help fatten us up, which could help us survive the winter. But now the fruits are shipped or produced in greenhouses all year round. So winter never comes. So there's no balance. Right. And them, makes them well, so I'm curious about what you're saying about the sweetness of fruits would a tartar fruit be better or like cross the board they're all sweeter generally but the simple rule is blueberries, strawberries, raspberries and the berry fruits are generally lower sugar and generally a better option especially for people and probably 70% of Americans have some level of type 2 diabetes, not diagnosed, but but some level of diabetic dysfunction type 2. So mm -hmm. sugar is really a problem. They're kind of carbohydrate or sugar intolerant. They've lost the metabolic ability to process safely. So yeah, the berry fruits tend to be lower sugar and just a safer option. 
for people who have a difficulty handling their sugar, which is the majority nowadays. Well, I know there's a lot of uh, attention to or blueberries, like organic blueberries, like it's an antioxidant, and uh, and I love them anyway. But <laughs> so I'm glad to hear the berries are still on the list. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the better option, shall we say, and, and they can be a bit more expensive, but you should eat the whole fruit. So juicing fruit, unfortunately, does not make any sense because the sugar of many fruits goes into one shot. So your liver, unfortunately, has to deal with a flood of liquid sugar, um, which is not good for your liver. Um, it's a bit like, I mean, Professor Robert Lustig calls sugar the alcohol of the child. And mm. that's the same in America and worldwide, that the effect of excessive sugars, especially liquid sugars, rapidly absorbed um, and soft drinks, is they, they hurt the liver in a very similar mechanism to how alcohol hurts the liver of the excessive drinker, the adult. Whoa, this is a whole different way of uh, thinking about eating. Is that what your book goes into? Yeah, essentially we did, myself and Dr. Jeffrey Gerber from Denver, he's Denver's diet doctor, so he's been a low-carb, higher-fat doctor helping Americans with their metabolic disease since, oh, must be around 18 years. So he came in long before me, but he discovered my lectures on YouTube. I was getting very popular with these kinds of messages and all the science, uh, which was translated in diagrams and simple graphs for the masses. And he came looking for me, survivor, you know, you've discovered what I discovered. So we, we formed a strong friendship. And uh, our book, basically, we did it in, in three seconds, sections with a professional editor. And we did a first section of five chapters, which goes through what we got wrong in nutrition and what's right at a, a simple level, storytelling about where we made the mistake to believe fat was bad, etc., and that vegetable oils were good. Uh, and then we go into personal plans to fix your metabolism, and we've got recipes and a professional chef did 60 recipes in full color. And then this, the next section of the book, six chapters, goes into the science. So it kind of explains with many references how it's all accurate. And then when you get to the final steps, psychology, approach, habit forming, and uh, chapters on supplements, vitamins, minerals, what really is valuable, what's not. So it rounds off the book. And we finalized with four appendices where I insisted I wanted to put the deeper science in. Uh, the publisher said, oh, you know, it'll add to the weight of the book. And I said, look, this one's got to be complete. So the appendices are for the real nerds. And we oh, bring great. <laughs> So I want to uh, say that the book is called Eat Rich, Live Long, and I'm going to get this book myself. I'd like to, maybe this will be the Christmas gift I give to my family because part of my family is like deep into carbs. I mean, like deep into carbs. I think this is a great gift for people to give to their families to to encourage a healthy life and a long life. Eat Rich, Live Long. Get it now. <laughs> really save yourself a heart attack. Well, that, yeah, there's a big section on the calcium scan to prevent heart disease, the technology that tells you 
how big our problem is and absolutely how to fix it. And uh, that's the key. So we've had enormous success around the world. And there's actually a low-carb movement of professors, doctors, physiologists all over the world uh, that I didn't know about in 2012. I thought I had discovered this myself. Can you imagine the arrogance? I actually thought I discovered Eureka myself, a massive truth that no one knew. And later I realized there's an actual low-carb community out there that largely knows this. So it was disappointing in one sense, but it was very pleasing in another because I got a huge network of doctors and researchers who already were on board and we could compare notes. Well, this is a perfect place to bring in Annetta because she's got the nerdy questions. (laughs) Annetta? Yes, I am nerd extraordinaire in this area. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I, I totally love this topic. Uh, so I was one of those people that, that was, I guess I was contrarian from the very beginning because I remember back when I was um, adolescent, my parents said, oh, you know, we, we grew up with really good food. And all of a sudden they were saying, oh, well, you know, you got to eat margarine now. It doesn't taste as good, but it's better for you. And, you know, the whole thing. And I was really shocked because both my parents were in the, my, my mom was in the medical field. And my, my father's a biomedical scientist. So I thought, you know, this is weird. This doesn't make sense to me. It didn't take me very long at all. And there was this war in the house, actually. I refused to eat margarine. And they were eating, uh, you know, they were eating the margarine. And then later on, uh, my dad had a high cholesterol diagnosis. And then, oh, you have to eat a no-fat diet. And I went back and I said, you know, that's, that's just cocky. This is like a hockey, whatever, that garbage stuff. It's just because I knew that the liver could produce all of this uh, cholesterol. And if you starve your body um, of the the things that you need, the nutrients and the fats you need, then it's going to go haywire. So, of course, that's what happened. And then, um, lo and behold, you know, the high blood pressure, the whole metabolic thing happened, and the stantons were prescribed, and the blood pressure lowering and now unfortunately my father has Alzheimer's and I I believe that there's a strong connection between this um, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that but I I really I mean it, it didn't take much as, a, as an adolescent to figure out hmm, you know all this processed food can't be better than nature and it's not so anyway what, what's your Let's get into the, a little bit of nerdy stuff. Where would you start with that, with talking to people um, about the, the cholesterol and the whole the whole uh, narrative that's been brought up around that that's false? Yeah, absolutely false, uh, Annette. So when I discovered this, well, I realized that the fat was not bad, and that, just like you said, uh, it made no sense. But it took me a while to get used to that as I began to eat fatty lamb chops my brain was screaming at me, this is going to clog your heart. But luckily, I had all the research and I knew I was correct. So I kept eating them and that's what transformed my bloods. But the history of the corruption that caused this, I think it started off not as direct corruption. Ansel Keys, a fish physiologist, and I think he was a PhD in something else, but a very powerful larger-than-life character, very influential, got this idea that cholesterol, you know, was driving the heart attacks. 
And there was a, a correlation or a loose linkage between higher cholesterol and higher heart attacks, but no one understood it properly. But he said it's, it's a fact. It's the big factor. And then as he looked around more, he got the idea that saturated fat in the diet could drive up the cholesterol. And now he had the full diet heart hypothesis that eating more saturated fats drives up your blood cholesterol, which clogs your arteries and gives heart disease. And it was completely incorrect. But he was very powerful, uh, influential. He got funding. He became very senior in the American Heart Association. A very clever political character and a quite a vicious character assassinator of any professors or specialists who said, this doesn't actually make sense and raised all of the contradictions in the theory raised all of the exceptions around the world, like the super high-fat Maasai and Inuit and many other peoples who had incredible heart health and they ate almost no carbohydrate. But he blasted them and kind of hammered them all. And he, and he won. And he produced bad science. But it seemed intuitive. You know, fat in your blood clogs your arteries. seemed intuitive. And he became very successful. And industry, I think then the corruption took over. At first, the processed food industry thought, well, this is great. You know, the science seems to say that we can replace real foods with short shelf life and their expensive raw materials. Um, they're not amenable to mass marketing and shipping internationally. But we, the scientists seem to be telling us that if we use these super cheap, junky seed oils and factory oils, and we use these super cheap refined grains and wheat crops and sugars, and um, that that's good. Well, okay then. <laughs> so they got on board, and there was a massive storm of processed foods released on the market. And I think later the corruption got deeper because as science began to wake up and you began to get more and more challenges to these ridiculous theories, the processed food industry, a massive industry, uh, began to fund a lot of science. And they would fund universities and departments to do studies. And the clear goal was very, very obvious. Uh, find data to verify that the current paradigm is correct. So you had massive amounts of studies, all biased to find that the current paradigm was correct. So that's where the corruption really came in is the big guys, the corporates and the industrialists and the food industry realize that there's no way we can change this paradigm now because any move back to real food and natural fats is going to really hammer our industry. So I think that was the sequence. It started off with genuine misunderstanding and, and ignorance, and then it became established and it was defended by the bad guys. Well, and then there's, of course, the uh, pharmaceutical industry has a big paw in there, too, because they, they benefit immensely from this. And the medical, uh, you know, the, the medical industrial complex we have going, at least in this country, for sure benefiting, I think, most of the Western world. Um, well, actually, our sound engineer, Keith, has a story he wants to share with us about this specific thing. I don't know what it is, but take it away, Keith. Hi, Ivor. Ivor. Um, my doctor, my general practitioner, uh, I went to my annual checkup, and then a few days later, I get a call from his nurse or his secretary, 
And she said, I need your, <clears throat> I need your, the address of your pharmacy. And I said, why? She said, well, uh, we noticed that your cholesterol is a little high and uh, he wants to put you on a statin. And I was like, well, I don't really want to get on a statin. I really don't like taking uh, any kind of drugs at period if I don't have to, not even aspirin. But he, she says, well, we, we're going to put you on the statin. My wife insisted that I get on this statin. And I decided, I'd, okay, I'm going to get on the statin. And after a few weeks, I, I work on computers. I work with the people on the phone with the computers as well. And I have to have patience. And that's one thing I have a lot of is patience because you can't just, you know, jump into something and say, oh, I'm, I'm tired of waiting for this or whatever. And you mess up your computer. So the next thing I know, my patience is gone. I, I knew I had lost my patience because I would be on the phone talking with somebody and I'd get this urge to just say, get the heck off the phone. And, and that's not me. It's not my personality, but I knew something was wrong. And I even, I, well, I even went off on this one uh, timeshare place one time because they kept trying to sell me something. And I usually just sit there and say, no, no, no. And I just went off and they just said, okay, we're giving your money back. You can go. Because it, I just went really off. Once I got off that statin, my patients came back and I was back to myself. And it took like two weeks before that happened. Because I came home one night, one o'clock in the morning when I got off from ABC News. And I shoved everything on the floor and the counter, started putting stuff out in the garage. I couldn't stop myself. It, it's like they think one pill fits everybody. And it threw my chemical makeup off. I was totally out of balance. But now I've got my patience and everything's back to normal. And I hate that. So now when a doctor says, yeah, we're going to do this, or we're going to do that, I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. I don't care what you say. I will find an easier and other way to do it. They never talked to me about either diet or something like that. And, and that's what I hated. So that's my experience with this. Yeah, that's a great story, Keith, and all too common, I'm afraid. So lowering cholesterol unnaturally has implications, and any medication that has an effect also has to have a toxicity. You know, if it's going to be effective and, and disrupt pathways, it, it can have negative sides. And statins, you know, 20%, 30% of people taking them will experience muscle pain or mental fog or... You know, neurology, your brain has around 25% of your body's cholesterol, but it's only 4% of your body weight. So there's massive amounts of cholesterol required for the whole architecture of the brain. And if you take a drug that drives that down remorselessly, it may have some benefits. And it, it appears that it lowers the chance of a heart attack somewhat. But to be honest, as an engineer, the benefits claimed from the trials, if indeed they were fully and honestly executed, uh, to me look pretty trivial. And the harms are many, myriad, and subtle, and may not be identified. Uh, my father-in-law actually had high cholesterol, very high. It was up around 350, I think, milligrams. And they put him on full-strength Lipitor. And after in the year, he used to go mountain climbing and occasionally jogging. You know, he's in his mid-60s fit guy, slim, and after a year, he got to the point where he said even walking at times could be taxing, 
I mean, that's, that's how bad it is. And I explained to him the cholesterol, it's not the number of your total cholesterol. It's not the number of your LDL bad cholesterol. That can be massive with no problem. It's the ratio between your cholesterol numbers. And the only reason that the ratio between the cholesterol numbers is useful for risk is because it reflects your insulin resistance or your degree of diabetic dysfunction. So the whole cholesterol narrative has been kept simple by the industry. Higher bad, lower good. And it's literally almost meaningless. So I can have a guy with, say, 160 milligram total cholesterol, which is low, doctor's happy. That guy, his arteries can be burning up with diabetic problems, undiagnosed. And he can be heading straight for an early heart attack. And equally with people with cholesterol of 500 and 600 that would make a doctor panic and they have zero calcium scores and clean angiogram arteries in their late 60s. So I couldn't stress more. The total cholesterol or the total bad cholesterol that they use is a medication target. And it's almost meaningless in terms of future risk. But that's what the industry is built on. And like the food, they will not allow that paradigm to be updated to reality because the business is built on high, bad, low good. I was just curious if that was tied to your Fat Emperor title. Ah, well, Fat Emperor was a kind of a triple metaphor that I thought up with my wife one night after a couple of glasses of wine. So as I realized the sheer corruption of this and bad science many years ago, um, we somehow came up with this metaphor. So there's the emperor as in the emperor's new clothes, because obviously I had a host of researchers over 30 years who tried to fight this paradigm about cholesterol and they were beaten back. So there was, or there were also a lot of researchers who knew this was crap but they wouldn't speak up. So the emperor's clothes, no one wanted to speak up because it was clear what would happen to you. And then there was the fat, of course, is for the fat, poor person whose appetite is out of control, who's told to eat more carbohydrate, hence sending them from the frying pan into the fire. Not their fault. The poor fat emperor, if you will. And then there's the emperor representing the corporate power. So I was a corporate guy for nearly 30 years and I ran programs that were, let's just say, not exactly ethical as part of the job. So I, I, I have no naivety and I saw that this corporate power had twisted the science on fat, on cholesterol, on whole grains, on vegetable oils, on carbohydrates. Everything was twisted. And, you know, that corporate power required to maintain that. I mean, academia is slow to change. And yes, there are myriad professors who told us to eat low fat, high carb. And their personal pride and cognitive dissonance makes it impossible for them to change with the science. That's true. But it was corporate power and funding that really kept this bad paradigm alive. Without that, I think we'd be way ahead today. I think we would, too. I actually haven't even gotten to where I, I wanted to in this section with you, so I hope we can come back to that. But at the moment, we're going to go out to a break here. 
and then we'll come back and go further into this idea with you, either. Tonight's show is the Emperor's New World Order, and our guest is Ivor Cummings, and I'm co-hosting with uh, Kintia and Timothy Saunders. We'll be back shortly. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. They are so few. They're in the thousands. We are billions. We are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology today to control us. And that is where AI, 5G comes in. And then through the vaccine also get rid of two thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda. They want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, this is Ole Vonnegut from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years, I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say the other side of the news is one of my favorite shows. So enjoy. Welcome back to the other side of the news. You're listening to The Emperor's New World Order, and our guest this evening is Ivor Cummins. Back to you, Aneta. Yes, well, I, you know, we could have a whole show just on the drug issue and the side effects or the, uh, I call them the drug effects. Uh, you know, that, that's a whole thing, the whole way we got around to that. But what I'd really like to dig into, because it's connected to the pandemic, I'd really like to talk about the, the epidemic of obesity, how metabolically that affects us and why it makes it one of the, the, the strongest factors in the comorbidity or the fact that even people are, uh, you know, they're, they're more prone to, to have um, their immune systems are down enough that they actually have this COVID-19 reaction. Could you address it? We can start wherever you'd like on that one. So, yeah, the obesity is a huge problem, but at the same time, it's not really the obesity that drives the issue. So it's a little complicated, but you can be thin outside, fat inside, TOFI, T-O-F-I. And basically, the fat in your organs is the main problem. So you can have a very obese gentleman or lady, and they're metabolically quite healthy, and they don't have fat in their organs. And essentially what happens is that some people genetically have an ability to keep adding body fat 
in a relatively safe manner. So they are quite obese, but it's safe storage of fat relatively. And then we have people who genetically, and Asian and Indian populations have a, have a challenge here. Uh, they don't have the same genetic ability to build safe external body fat as a repository for the energy they're taking in. And therefore, when they have bad food, uh, they develop a small belly, a small pot belly, and rapidly build fat in their organs. So think of it as a, a threshold, a personal fat threshold. Some people can build a lot of safe fat and get very large uh, while protecting their organs. And some people can not get fat at all, uh, but their organs are filling with fat and they're heading straight for a heart attack. So that's just a, a nuance. And the problem is always, though, bad food. I mean, lack of exercise will exacerbate bad food. But if you eat really good, real whole foods, no ultra-processed foods your whole life, uh, moderate exercise and walking around and doing your business will see you, will see you right. Uh, so exercise, we always say you can't outrun a bad diet. In other words, it's what you put in your mouth that dictates mainly the health of your machine, whether it's lack of vitamins and minerals or whether it's excess of ultra-processed foods and bad foods. Um, and exercise can counteract bad food a little, but, you know, you got to face the big factors. Uh, now, the connection to the immune system um, is many and varied. So when you become... Uh, metabolically deranged and I think it's important here if we take America from government figures uh, 64% of over 45s in America a couple of years ago uh, were declared to be pre-diabetic or diabetic now pre-diabetic just means you're not a really bad type 2 diabetic uh, you're not really bad but I put them all in the same category pre-diabetic and diabetic type 2 uh, they're all type 2 diabetic. It's just a matter of extent. So we have the situation that if you measure it more accurately, uh, you would find that probably well over 70% of Americans over 45 are essentially type 2 diabetic, right, with proper testing. And that's a huge proportion. And we see again and again that people with type 2 diabetes physiology have poor immune function, uh, overreactive immune system in, in the bad way and underreactive in a bad way also. And diabetes type 2 is insulin resistance. So it's high blood sugar and high blood insulin and your body becomes resistant to the actions of this powerful hormone insulin. It's a real metabolic mayhem situation where your body is resisting the action of the insulin it's releasing in an attempt to control the sugar. And pushing carbohydrate in your mouth is driving the fire, it's feeding the fire. So high insulin and insulin resistance is really the problem. And that also means you'll have high leptin and leptin resistance, a very important hormone, very like insulin in many ways. And leptin is a cytokine. Leptin is intimately engaged with the immune system response. So these are inextricably linked. If you become insulin resistant, leptin resistant, type 2 diabetic physiology, if you go into that space, you are essentially cutting the wires on your immune system.
you're making it ineffective. And that's going to make you susceptible to nasty viruses like SARS-CoV-2. And it appears that for SARS-CoV-2, being diabetic physiology is an enormous risk factor for ICU admittance probability or indeed mortality. And the reality is that we know that older people are hit much, much harder, vastly harder by this virus. And that's true. But I said to my mother, who is 80 years old when this came in, I said, you don't need to worry because your blood work shows you're exquisitely insulin sensitive, non-insulin resistant. Therefore, I would prefer to be you than to be a 52-year-old diabetic accountant. And, you know, I was making the point. Yes, when you're older, you become more insulin resistant, you become more diabetic, and your immune system begins to go into senescence or begins to, you know, slow down and be less effective. But if you are insulin sensitive, ultra non-diabetic, healthy with muscle mass in your 80s, you're at lower risk than someone in their late 50s who has all of these problems. So it's not really the age per se with this virus. It's the metabolic health is the quarterback. That's the big, big factor here. Right. I, I, that's what I understand. And, I'm, and that was a really exquisite uh, explanation there. I love that. Uh, because I look at this and I see how this metabolic, uh, what we call metabolic, um, well, that's the word I'm looking for, syndrome. Syndrome. There we go. Yeah, so that metabolic syndrome really is is the the driving factor. And I I wanted to to go back a little bit about the cytokine, uh, because we have these cytokine storms, and we're we're seeing this uh, overstimulation of the immune system with these virus, uh, well, with these vaccines, I mean, that's what I meant to say, vaccines. And, you know, um, I, I think people don't understand the function of what's happening there in the body. And I'd love to hear, uh, because you so eloquently did that last one, could you go a little bit into that for people to understand? Yeah, so in terms of the cytokine storm, that is your body uh, trying to destroy the virus. But the problem is it's, it's a panic reaction, if you will. Uh, so it can be an excessive reaction if the first layers of your immune system have not dealt with the problem. So a very healthy person, uh, for instance, there's layers in your immune system, layers of defense, if you will, from ancient through to more recently developed ones and more exotic ones. So if you take your mucosal Im- immune system, you've got mucosa, mucosal layers on your your airways, your trachea, and your lungs, and they're the first line of defense. So if the virus comes in, it's got to get through your mucosa and and get in deeper. And a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people, a huge percentage, their mucosal immune system alone will stop SARS-CoV-2, even though it's a new virus, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But if that's not great, you know, it will get in deeper and into your bloodstream and then begin to target your cells. And then you've got a T-cell system. And the T-cell system doesn't need to see uh, a virus that it's seen before because these viruses are families. And most humans, their T-cells will have seen some other family member of coronavirus or influenza. 
So it will recognize proteins within these viruses that are new versions, but it will recognize many elements and it will say, okay, this is, this is a threat. So people's T-cell T system can take care of the virus before they show any particular problem. And then you've got B cells and adaptive immune system and antibodies. And, you know, they're kind of when you get into a more extreme reaction, when the thing has progressed further. But the cytokine storm is kind of the last defense where your body is releasing cytokines or active agents to attack, attack, and they attack your own cells as well. So as Dr. Ron Rosedale, and I might send you the link afterwards, back in April at the start of this, I talked to a genius, Dr. Ron Rosedale in India, and he was one of the discoverers of leptin and insulin importance in chronic disease nearly 30 years ago. And he's just one of these savant types. He's a brilliant technical MD. But we discussed this, and he went through all of what I'm saying, and he basically said the cytokine storm is your body is sending out myriad soldiers with machine guns and they're just blazing bullets. And yeah, they're going to kill a few viruses, but they're also going to kill you too. So it's an excessive reaction, a last ditch attempt to fight like crazy, but tissue gets damaged everywhere. You know, vascular tissue, artery tissue, organ tissue. Um, at that stage, you, you have not been successful in properly fighting off the disease at a reasonable earlier stage. A healthy, non-insulin resistant person with no immunocompromise will fight it off with minimal symptoms like a flu. And a person who ends up in the last stages had a problem independent of SARS-CoV-2, whether it was type 2 diabetes, whether it was stage 4 cancer, where there was an undiagnosed cancer affecting the immune system, there's always a deeper cause as to why you succumb to a virus like this. It's a tough virus, but it's actually not tougher on average, really, than a severe flu. And that's what people need to remember. We've been here before with severe flus many years in the past few decades. 68 was obviously a big one, 57, but also several years in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There were na nasty flu seasons with overrun hospitals and very significant mortality. But we did not choose to copy China with lockdowns and destroy our society. Uh, that's the unique thing of 2020. Ivor, uh, it's Timothy here. I've been very happily listening to your conversations. Fascinating. I think we need to go deeper into this. However, at the same time, as there are three of us, I would like to mix it up a little bit and ask you some more about uh, your future projects. For example, you know, I've been listening to you, your show, The Fat Emperor, over the last few months and uh, have regularly been putting your uh, podcast links on our links page so our listeners can benefit from your, your knowledge and the information you're sharing as well. And, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed how you, uh, what can I say, you've built up a positive reputation for, you know, um, holding very true, sort of close to the facts, that, you know, being discernment and truth are very important elements of everything you say. I mean, just, just listening to you for the last 
hour or so, you know, every word you say is, is considered. And I think that that's uh, a very great reflection of, of, you know, how you've built up uh, a good reputation for, um, you know, speaking concisely and delivering the, the facts without sort of any speculation or conspiracy. So that, that's a, a very nice ramp. But I was delighted when I heard that you are about to start making, I think, what you call the definitive documentary about the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And hey, thanks, Timothy. Yeah. Um, well, myself and Donald O'Neill, who's a filmmaker who's made several movies with a South African uh, production company, we made a movie on preventing heart disease and heart attacks a couple of years ago. And it was actually going to premiere just when Corona hit. Uh, so we have this background going back some time. And as we talked in late March and early April, I was already going out interviewing risk analysis experts and doctors on this Corona phenomenon because I was identifying that. Well, from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, I knew already the approximate impact of this, and it would be like a severe flu, and it would target the elderly. And that was an and, interesting project, uh, project, an interesting situation, because it was actually literally a ship at sea, which had a confined um, environment for a certain number of people. And there's only so much separation you can make. And I know from my, my business as a yacht designer that, you know, as much as you want to clean a ventilation system, you are still sharing air with uh, other people on the ship. So if it is an airborne entity, then presumably that would uh, be a factor in the how contagious it would be. Is that Did you find that to be true? Oh, yes, absolutely. And basically, it told you not all you needed to know about SARS-CoV-2, but because it is, yes, largely airborne, um, it was what I called a Petri ship, and, yeah. uh, a Petri dish. And it just simply told you what happened when you fully exposed 3,700 people in a confined environment over several weeks. And remember, they only started isolating later. And there's dormancy in this virus too. So all the spreading often happens before you come in charging like Cavalier, which are lockdowns. The game is already over. It just hasn't played through yet in the mortality curve, but it's already done. That was the irony of this whole thing with the lockdowns in Europe. But, and the same in New York, they actually put in lockdowns after the curve was curling down. So it's just like futile. But anyway, put that aside. Uh, yeah, the, the ship was the perfect test case, and it mostly had older people on it, so even better in a way to get data. And but also they had, a younger crew as well. So there were... A fair number of crew on board, I guess. Ah, yeah, I'm not sure what the breakdown is, but they were certainly spiked uh, as an older type people compared to an average random population. So mm -hmm. it was it was it was nicely representative. So they had 13 deaths, and again, some of those were with, uh, not necessarily necessarily from. So maybe around 10 and 3,700. So it roughly told you the impact, and it was quite clear you, you would never need to shut down your society. You just have to uh, protect the vulnerable, susceptible, in so much as you reasonably could. And that was very clear to me. So my wife was a bit worried about it, and she was hearing all this media coverage, and I said, no, 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 no. I said, I looked at the Chinese data, there's 10x risk for aged, 10x risk for, you know, 
uh, COPD, which is usually insulin resistance, 10x risk for heart disease, which is insulin resistance mostly. I said, we don't need to worry. You know, maybe older people, insulin resistant diabetic people, absolutely, but we, we don't need to be concerned. Um, and my mother, I actually made the joke at the time, my mother who's 79 doesn't need to be concerned either because of her metabolic health. And mm. that's be true, of course. Um, but, but the ship gave the data. And uh, Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford, most cited professor almost in history, a professor, um, MD, full doctor, and a professor of epidemiology. So you're talking about the best of the best. And I know his work um, for a long time before this thing. And he came out in April and he used the data and I went through his papers and I said, yeah, that makes sense because he was using antibody test results and he was projecting and he was triangulating back to the same kind of, you know, 0.2% infection fatality rate and, you know, similar to the Diamond Princess looking at the um, the Chinese data, similar. Mm-hmm. And it all, for me, triangulated to around 0.2% and much lower for people under 70, and again, vastly lower for people under 50 or with, with metabolic health. And this was all obvious, but the authorities were saying several percent. I mean, they were talking, you know, Spanish flu. And I, I just said, that makes no sense. I said, this data is so obvious, so obvious in April. And I did a podcast with a, a Wall Street risk manager who managed the SARS risk uh, profile and planning for, for this hedge fund. And we went through with an Excel sheet on the Italian data and showed clearly that the lockdown came after the curves had gone up and curled over. So it was simply clear in the data the lockdown didn't help. And we were pulling our hair out because the infection fatality rate was in the envelope of a severe flu. It hit the older harder and it actually hit the younger and pregnant women less hard than the severe flu, which is something to be thankful for. So we knew the impact level, and it was not extraordinary, and nothing like the Spanish flu, not even the same ballpark. And we also knew the lockdowns were now being proven in the actual data, not the modeling, but in the actual data, it was clear the lockdown was not impacting the curves. So we knew the lockdown was no good either. So we said, right, the world's got to, going to wake up and realize, okay, it's a really bad flu, it's seasonal, it's going to come back next winter, but the lockdowns don't really do anything, so we need to get the economy back on track, we need to shield the vulnerable as much as we can, and we need to keep a healthy society and societal health for all our goods, and also to have a healthy health system and financial system to support the needs of anyone who is susceptible. But it's the virus to fault. We have a problem. Let's not add to that problem. And the irony mm-hmm. is, of course, they didn't just take the viral problem, SARS-CoV-2 impact, which is the virus's fault. It's nobody's fault. They didn't just take it and make it twice as bad or 10 times as bad. It's arguable they took the viral impact and made it maybe 100 times as bad. That's how bad this is. I mean, the scale of well, the bad is, I still have to pinch myself after nine months, seven days a week in this science. Mm-hmm. I still have moments, I had one just now, where I almost don't believe what's happened. It's that well, bad. 
I'm wondering, I mean, when, when you said the definitive documentary, I'm really wondering how 2020 will be remembered. You know, how will it be recorded? You know, who will record it? Because, you know, we're living in now a time of extreme censorship. I mean, this is not the, you know, this is not to do with the virus directly. This is now the political, economical or social engineering side of this whole conversation. You know, but if you succeed, I'm saying if, of course, you will succeed in, in making a wonderful well, documentary. I'm sure of that. However, what I'm really wondering about is how that will be circulated and uh, you know, who will actually get to see it. Mm. Yes, Timothy, this is a massive problem. And we know back in March, April, uh, the CEO of YouTube came out and said it and said, any video on YouTube that counters the WHO stance would be taken down. And I just watched that. My jaw just reached, you know, my top shirt button. Absolutely. So corporation is going to judge. And they're going to judge that an unelected, non-democratic, essentially a corporation, the WHO, are going to be given full authority on truth. And I just thought, oh, my God, like, who got to her? Yeah. Who is in these strings? Because it hasn't even happened yet. And they're saying, (laughs) yeah, they took down Kwiatkowski, the uh, epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. They're censoring full professors. And these professors, the irony is, they turned out to be correct. I mean, the record can state that now. These professors that were censored in April, the data has proven that they were correct. <laughs> well, it, it continues to, to, to prove that they're correct. Yeah. I mean, the, what, I'm, what I'm absolutely flabbergasted by, it's a word I haven't used for a while, but is the fact that the data is not supporting the pandemic. Pandemic, there we go. Um, but still nobody in authority or none of the... I call them puppet leaders of the countries, are prepared to backpedal, admit they're wrong. Uh, It looks like they're just going to take it all the way forward as if if it, you know, it it is, they made every complete, pure, perfect decision correctly at the right time. But in in retrospect, that's not true. If we look back at the very beginning, I remember I was in uh, Florida. I'd just come back from Italy and I couldn't go uh, further uh, east back to Turkey. So I went to Florida and I spent a few months there. And then very soon the aircraft were grounded so I couldn't get back to the UK either. Um, but at that point, I remember I was following the news and the UK Boris Johnson said that they were going to go for the sort of more herd immunity type strategy, uh, something along the lines that uh, Sweden actually did follow. And that seemed a very plausible and a natural strategy to me. It seemed seemed sensible. Um, I think there was also a little bit of euphoria and pride from this whole Brexit business, you know, in Boris Johnson's skip of his step at that time, and we're going to do it differently. We're going to do it independently. So, you know, maybe be that as it may, maybe that is the truth or not. But the point is they started off with that idea, but literally this wave of um, lockdown, lockstep, Everything we've been reading from, you know, the Rockefellers uh, documentation from May 2010, everything from the EMF, from you know, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, foundations, from, you know, all of these different other 
documents we've been talking and discussing in great detail over the last few months, all this lockstep lockdown strategy came out. And somehow, there are a few exceptions, Sweden being one of them to some extent, um, Belarus being another. Uh, I think there's probably a few more around the planet where people have been slightly more relaxed or taking this slightly less seriously than others. But certainly the United States, United Kingdom, many European countries are absolutely taking this swallow, this you know, hook, line and sinker. Uh, and I just think it's unbelievable how this, as you say, this unelected entity, WHO, uh, has that power. But apparently they do. Yeah, and sadly they do. I never would have thought it at the start, but increasingly in April I realized that there was this alignment, this orchestration, and it was against all the science. And therefore it's very worrying because all autocratic or totalitarianism states, they, they get to own the media. It's very important. Mm. And under my... I don't mean to cut you off, but let's come back to this point after the break. Let's talk about how science seems to have been inverted to religion. For the other side of the news, my name is Christopher James, and I just wanted to give my full support to these wonderful people who are bringing incredible light forward at this time and moment in our world. The truth has never been more important, and I was incredibly blessed to be with them and share with them enormous truth on our very first interview, and I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing our world finally coming together under one hood, under one understanding that there's truly only one of us, and that there's only love that matters in this world. And this one truth is going to save our world. And I'm so blessed to be able to bring this forward and share this light with my fellow man and woman from this show this evening. So support them all you can moving forward. An incredible bunch of people. And Godspeed. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nominally access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And 
welcome back to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Ivor Cummings, and co-hosting is Netta Driscoll, Timothy Saunders, and myself, Kinthea. So, Ivor, I was just listening to how you were saying how the uh, the politicians and the media people have got it all wrong, and what I've observed is how the doctors globally are being censored. Every time we put up a link from some eminent scientist about why this is not true, what it really is, it's gone like a week or even a few days or even a few hours later. And wow, I mean, what do you see as a counterpoint to this? Yeah, well, Quinty, I mean, a counter, it's hard to counter. So I'm obviously releasing as much factual scientific information that reveals the reality of this virus. I'm avoiding releasing much on the, the uh, sinister bodies that are driving a lot of this. And that's because, you know, of the censorship. So I'm treading a line, if you will. Mm-hmm. But the reality is... I see it as, and again, thinking as a root cause person, um, you can root cause not just technical issues, you can root cause psychological issues, management issues, employee issues. They're all inherently technical uh, in nature, and you can root cause often multi-factor causes that come together. So long story short, the way I view this is, yes, there's an engine that's driving hysteria that relates to local countries, politicians, and their people. Um, so once you get hysteria going, the politicians have a single big issue, which makes their lives easier, actually. So the deficit, the problems, the economy, you know, joblessness, all of that becomes excusable away because you're dealing with a big issue. You know, it's like I'm a war president or any of that kind of stuff. You got a big issue and everyone rallies behind it. And now you don't have to worry about all the hard stuff of government nearly as much but as you get the people propagandized and and terrified and humans have an innate instinctive fear of contagion like spiders and snakes and contagion is similar it's deep and also humans cannot understand contagion because it's complex virology epidemiology immunology too complex so you've got this terrible situation where the people can be cultured to have a nameless dread, a fear that's utterly disproportionate with the level of threat. And because they can't possibly grasp the science of this fear, it's an unknown fear, and that makes it greater. And when you make the people fearful, they project the fear back on you, and they demand the government to keep them safe. So you do create a self-fulfilling prophecy here, a Mm -hmm. feedback. And the government then say, well, okay, then we're going to lock down and close the schools. And then the teachers go, yes, you know, because we were going to be exposed to this terrible fear when it was never really a terrible fear at all. So you've got this self-fulfilling madness, like a Dutch tulip uh, madness that occurred or the Salem witch trials. Everyone gets in a froth and they reinforce each other until eventually it's just bewildering to the rational scientific mind observing it. Now, that's, that's one big engine, and that has certainly happened in all these countries. But there's a more important engine, and that's what set it all off in the first place. And that's the real root cause. So I always give the example, if I magically went back to March 2020, 
And I raised my hand and the WHO, the UN, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, Rockefeller, the World Economic Forum, that's a huge one. And I just froze them, just froze them, you know. And then the governments had to simply talk to each other across the countries and say, hey, what are we going to do? Our hospitals are busy. No, our hospitals are filling up. And you left it to the governments and the people in all the countries. None of this would have happened. I have zero doubt about that. Mm -hmm. So the engine of fear and psychosis that's running, yeah, some of it is the fault of the countries and their politicians and their people, etc., and irrational fear. But it never would have ignited and been sustained without the bodies at the top because it couldn't. And I'll just give one little example. So I told my wife and, and many other people, actually, I said, by April or May, the ICUs will be emptying out across Europe and the deaths will fade away to nothing for the whole long summer, four or five months before SARS-CoV-2 will resurge next winter at a lower level than it did at the start but it will resurge but i said there's no way they're going to keep this nonsense going for four or five months of the summer in the absence of any impacts you can't i said it's impossible and some people said to me i don't know i don't know because we saw there's going to be no return to old normal we saw this talk in march there's something going on here. And I said, come on, how are they going to keep this going? All mm -hmm. so impossible. Well, they did. And that's why I got really worried. Because in the middle of the summer, the most anti-scientific thing I have witnessed in my lifetime occurred. And I, I'm not joking. In the middle of the summer, when this whole thing was becoming farcical, they suddenly brought in mandatory masks under pain of fines or prison. And I was literally, as Timothy said, speechless. And then I thought about it and I realized the genius. If nothing's happening and you want to keep the fear alive until the winter, the perfect clever thing to do is make it feel like something's happening. And mandatory masks do that for you. So that's my suspicion or my root cause of this. In the absence of anything to keep the fear alive and this whole, I don't know, this whole crazy kind of carousel going, they brought in mandatory masks. And that means everyone walks around knowing they're in the middle of something, a pandemic. For God's sake, everyone's face is covered. I mean, it must be a crisis if everyone has to go around with their faces covered. I mean, that's a big deal. Um, and it worked. Yeah, and I, think, mm -hmm. I also think well, that the fear is totally weakens our immune system, not to mention breathing our own toxins. So they're helping to recreate a problem. Yeah, that is a possibility. I think scientifically, the best that can be said is the masks are pretty worthless in terms of helping. And they probably have negatives, as you mentioned, but they're not really quantified. So it's hard to say, but certainly it's an unhealthy. I mean, masking the population, people were saying, oh, it's only a mask. And oh, well, it's only a mask. And why would you be arguing about that? Whatever about lockdowns. 
But I say to people, you bring in a mandatory order on all of your citizens, right, to cover their faces. And you bring it in when nothing is happening. Therefore, there is no possible exit strategy. If you bring in something like that, mandatory by law, when nothing is going on, how will you ever take it out? In other words, you imposed upon all your citizens such a thing with no exit strategy whatsoever. In other words, in perpetuity. And you're telling me that that's not a big deal to bring in prison sentences and fines to wear the garb of a mask for nothing, forever. That's a huge deal. This is an enormous step against democracy and freedoms that we stood for. I think you know the other point, just jump in very quickly, uh, is that the mask apparently needs to be worn to protect other people from for example, myself. So therefore, not only does it mix up the ignorance and the fear, but it also puts in this sort of uh, guilt, this sort of twist of guilt into the feeling so that uh, people, if they are, you know, tutted at or if they are, uh, people make comments that this person's not wearing a mask, it's unbelievable. You know, then suddenly that person suddenly feels this sort of terrible feeling of fear uh, because of the apparent danger of the contagion but also the guilt and i think that's something which uh, because of the way people have been molded through the media that we haven't mentioned the media very much yet but also you know historically through social engineering through media and uh, social media education you know people are not very strong when it comes when, when there's a suggestion of guilt people are generally not very strong because they don't like confrontation they tend to avoid it especially in this age of you know putting a thumb up or a thumb down on social media and, and there I've, I've you know I've, I've made my opinion known to the world and I put the thumb up or the thumb down well big deal that's behind a little plastic screen on your telephone well done now what about actually going tete-a-tete -tete with somebody in the street and saying I'm going to debate you about this mask business because I don't believe it, it is uh, healthy I don't believe there's any science to back it up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't mean I have to get angry or aggressive or even teach a lesson. I can just share my opinion and make the decision to wear the mask to protect myself or not, because it's my choice. It's not, not the choice of other people. And I think that's, that's also part of the, you say the genius. I think that's also part of the genius, that, that twist of guilt. I have something to say on that also. I mean, this, this uh, virtue, uh, virtue signaling, that I think that's what it you know, can be summed up as. Like, I'm so virtuous because I'm wearing this mask to protect you. And if people understood anything about masks, which I have desperately tried to inform people, um, they would not be wearing these things at all. It's ridiculous. It's, and uh, the, the best analogy is, you know, it's like asking a mosquito not to fly through a chain link fence. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, it does have a lot of negative consequences, and there's lots of studies to back that up. But I, what I really wanted to point out here is that this is actually medical intervention without consent. Uh, being forced to wear a mask is medical intervention without consent. That's why they know they cannot make the vaccines mandatory because this is based on an international treaty. It's the Nuremberg Code. We have that in place, and we need to start exercising that 
way beyond the idea that vaccines, you know, whether they can make them mandatory or not. Because then, they, you know, they just go around and they say, well, you can't fly if you don't have a vaccine, or you can't do this, or you, can, you can't walk into this store without proving you have a vaccine. Um, this is the same as, as making them mandatory, basically. We take your life away if you don't comply. And the, 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 the reality is we need to, to step up and step up quickly because we do have these tools in our, in our tool belt we do have the Nuremberg Code. We do have things in our constitutions. We have a lot of things, but people need to exercise this and say, I'm just not going to wear a mask, period. I mean, I don't. I, I just won't. And, uh, you know, yes, you have some head-to-heads, like, you know, like Timothy was saying, but those head-to-heads oftentimes can be very educational. I, like I said, not confrontational. Just ask them questions and say, why are you doing this? Why are you agreeing to this? Do you understand this? Do you know the science behind this? And, and what I find is these people are just programmed in fear, and sometimes they won't let go of that fear. It's their best friend, but sometimes they're willing to let go of that fear, and then they can be the strongest allies too. So that was just all I wanted to say about it. I oh, think yeah. there's an, addic- an addiction to the fear as well, isn't it? That's another element, don't you think? And that's, I mean, there's... Oh, absolutely, yes. It's a, anything that you get used to is, you know, they say, you know, you can be very uncomfortable in your comfort zone, but it's, it's a known. It's what you're comfortable with because you're used to it, no matter how uncomfortable it is. And this is certainly the case. Uh, you know, being very fearful it gets to be the norm. It's the comfort zone that you're used to. As crazy as that sounds, people do it all the time with all kinds of things. And we, you know, we aren't wired quite right, I don't think. Um, our brains, you know, our brains are designed to remember everything bad that's ever happened and then, therefore, to correlate the possible risk factor and whether you want to take it. But it doesn't, it cannot progress, it cannot uh, project out into the future what the possible positive outcomes can be. And this is where our brain is not our best friend at all. Well, I, I would disagree. I think that we can absolutely project to a, a positive outcome, and that's exactly what oh, I, w- okay. I would like to suggest we do. And I'm, not, I'm uh, not saying that we cannot, Timothy. What I'm saying is our brains are hardwired naturally to do this. This is how we're designed. I don't, I don't agree with you, I have to say. No, well, but, well, um, okay. Well, the science—the science behind that is pretty clear. But we can override well, your science, it. Can, it's your opinion, but I'm just saying I don't agree with you. So I, I believe that I wake up positive every morning and I see a clear path to a goal state, and the goal state that I want to live. That's how I see my life, and uh, that's what I do every day. I don't believe in any science. I don't care if there are ten thousand books telling me there is science, but this is my science. It works for me. Okay. And. Uh, in in human evolution, though, there's kind of there's no right answer here in the sense that humans are programmed to see threats and avoid threats for natural reasons, and our rational brain can overcome that and we can rationalize the threats. But I think with this one, because it's contagion, because it's coming down from our leaders in propaganda round the clock for months, I think our brains have just gone back into some atavistic state. I mean, the public now is just into a fight or flight, instinctive, mindless, you know, dissonance in their brains. I honestly think they've been utterly corrupted. That's, that's so I think, exactly what I'm referring to, the amygdala reaction here. That it's, it's hardwired to like 
run from this because it's not logical. It's not about waking up positive. It's it's this it's this thing that it, it will revert back to unless you you unless you go around it. Well, this is what I'm about to suggest is is that listening to between the, the the lines, one of the, the things uh, that Ivo was referring to recently in one of his recent podcasts was uh, there are other tests available, not just the RT-PCR test, which is totally inappropriate, even by Karim Mullis uh, himself said it's completely the wrong uh, test to use in this case. It's not even a test. Um, but there is the, uh, the lateral flow test, which was supposed to be the great savior because it's going to be more economical and uh, more fast to turn around and, and getting quick results and obviously if it's more economical and you can do multiple tests again and again sequentially to see which people fall away um, you know suspected contagious people will fall away to less and less and less until you literally have three out of a hundred or two out of a hundred or whatever it is um, by doing multiple tests but those results apparently have not been liked uh, by the authorities in the UK they have almost been rejected, I believe, because, well, they, they, they don't show any bad news anymore. So this, this can't be a good test. It must be totally unreliable. Well, the RT-PCR test is not a reliable way of diagnosing this COVID either. Um, but I think you were mentioning, that, is there something called an antigen test, either, that could be used to... There's various types of rapid antigen, and, and I leveraged here, there's an Irish doctors and surgeons group, so I've been putting together some material from their research, mm -hmm. uh, and we got an animation company as well, uh, pro bono almost, to, to work on this, uh, and they've done a lot, I haven't delved too deeply, but the rapid antigen yeah, looks for essentially the response to the actual virus, rather than looking for a tiny piece of the virus itself, and it makes much more sense as per my video. So the, the PCR test, you have to wait two or three days. You can be pretty sure that someone, uh, if it does say someone's infected, it's quite, it's got quite good specificity. But the problem is it catches a lot of people who just have dead fragments or old infections. So it adds all these people in there as cases when really they're not cases at all. And it's two or three days to get the result. The rapid antigen goes in now, if it says you're um, you're positive, you're you're sorted. You've got your answer in 20 minutes. So that's a massive engineering benefit for a test. But it it will miss some people that the PCR catches for sure. But the people who who are missed, 12 or 18 hours later, can do another 20 minute $10 test, and that'll cover the period where they may have been pre-symptomatic or infectious pre a positive antigen. So if you wait 12 or 18 hours, you get another clear one. You've now covered, and now you're up as good as the PCR, but it's taken you 18 hours and $20, and it can be done yourself compared to $150 and two to three days and catching people who are not a problem, and you got to go into a specialist to do it. Mm -hmm. There is no mm -hmm. comparison in the two systems. The rapid antigen would... And the other point I make about it is, they say the rapid antigen may not be quite as good at catching all the people. But think about one thing. Imagine, I don't know, let's say imagine a beach ball is the size of our problem if we did nothing. Well, the thing is, arguably, even if we did nothing with international travel, 
it might not make a huge difference to the ultimate outcome because this is ubiquitous, it's spread everywhere. But let's say the problem we have is the size of a beach ball for international travel and for movement and work and all that. Well, if you use the PCR, you'll catch a very high number of people and you can say you've reduced your problem to the size of, of a golf ball. But the rapid antigen, if you use it, it's not quite as good it will reduce the problem to slightly larger than the golf ball. But Mm -hmm. if you think of it, both tests have reduced your problem from a beach ball roughly to a golf ball. They've done a huge amount of service. Um, But one of them is quick, easy, and would open up your economy, and the other one is useless. So why would we want to get the problem down by a factor of 30, um, but really want to get it to a factor of 30 one or two down do you see the absurdity looking for perfection where mm-hmm. arguably you don't need the tests at all you can the actually absurd, have you know, I, yeah. I think either the absurdity lies in the, in the question the absurdity is it's not about COVID and it's not about the virus this, yeah. is, this is now far far beyond anything medical even this is this is political this is uh, economical and it's social engineering I mean as we can see that yeah. those those villains uh in the you know the documentary the definitive documentary um which you mentioned earlier those those guys i i love you know the idea of freezing them and letting the other voices come forward uh, i wish we could go back in time and do that um but the, you know the point is let's just freeze them for a second longer and let's say okay what is the path to the solution is it the vaccine what are your views on that yeah the vaccine i tend to avoid vaccine talk because it's become weaponized word anti-vax vaccine conspiracy theorists is not a weaponized term and be under no illusions these terms were built up as weaponized terms against resistance for decades and now they're being deployed big time but they were built up for many 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 years So now when they use these kind of dog whistle words, most normal people think, oh, that guy's crazy. Mm -hmm. But but he's not. He's being attacked with a weaponized phrase that was intended for dissenters and actually truth speakers. It was intended to deal with the rational leadership types who try and bring sanity to these problems. Uh, Those words were designed to deal with those guys in the future, and now they're using them. So that's one thing. Uh, The vaccine... You don't have to think about the harms from a vaccine. So it should have been a six to eight year cycle to develop these RNA vaccines and look at long term effects over large numbers. That's science. And that's how the medical system and pharmaceutical system works. Uh, It should work. On the back of disaster capitalism and creating a crisis out of this very bad flu equivalent, uh, they're going to get them in in six or eight months. So inherently, Fundamentally, in principle, this is a rushed thing, which is bad science. And if it was warranted to rush it, like we had bubonic plague or something, uh, you might say, well, look, it's so desperate that we have no choice but to rush and do bad science. But the truth is the opposite. We know it's a bad flu equivalent. And the other thing is that it's gone through its first wave. A new virus only gets one big wave. Then it gets a seasonal resurgence. That's what we're seeing now. And after that, to be honest, it's kind of endemic and done. 
So in Europe, by a couple of months' time, it'll have gone through its big wave, and you can see it in the mortality data for Europe. The first uh, February, March, was a substantial increase in all-cause mortality for around two months. Now we're seeing a seasonal resurgence, which already is curling downwards in Europe, and it's much smaller than the original. And the next one, next season, is going to be smaller again. In other words, it's going to be into background level. But we're going to bring in a vaccine after the problem Mm -hmm. is 90% finished. Imagine. We're bringing in a solution after the problem has essentially resolved itself. Now, I know it's very sad for people who passed, but let's be honest scientifically here. The problem will have been largely passed, and then we bring in the solution. And any sane person would say, well, hold on, how much do we need this solution given the problem has largely passed? The answer is, well, only if the solution is cheap and easy and safe, and it's a no-brainer because it's easy to do. That's not the case. This is a massive, costly endeavor of a rushed drug. This should be done in extremis, bubonic plague, people falling in the streets, that kind of thing. We don't see any of that, do we? It's nowhere to be seen. the opposite. I mean, even in the epidemic in Europe, in the middle of the epidemic, everyone was asking everyone, do you know anyone who knows anyone even? who got very sick or died. And the answer was always no. Except, oh, well, my aunt is 97. She's in a nursing home. Now, I know there were younger people who died. Of course there were. But statistically, dying in the streets? No way. No way. Dying in the nursing home? Yes. Stage four cancer? Immunocompromised? Yes. But not dying in the streets. And nearly no one under 50. That's the reality. And in Ireland, we went through the epidemic in April. And the April mortality was no higher than the January in 2017 or the January in 2018. Ireland went through an epidemic that was on the media wall to wall showing terrible, catastrophic impacts. And the first six months in Ireland is no different in mortality than the prior five years. Mm-hmm. People passed have, a little earlier. That's it. I have a, unbelievably, we've come to the end of the show. Would you like oh, to... Yeah. Tell us how we can support you in creating this definitive documentary. We literally have 45 seconds. Okay, it's Kickstarter, the COVID Chronicle. Look for either Cummins, Donal O'Neill. And we finish, I think, in around 24 hours. I mean, it might be finished uh, very soon. But uh, we reached our targets and exceeded. We're doing great. Any more will make the movie even better. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Ivor. And as Cynthia, would you like to say good night? Oh, really appreciate you illuminating the patterns of good health because we need it. And uh, I appreciate a sane voice speaking up. I'm definitely going to get that book and share it with my family. Thank you. Thanks, Cynthia. Thanks, everyone.